Hey there, and welcome to the Bakingish Podcast, the podcast where we go through cult classic and timeless recipes, break down what makes them work, and how to experiment with recipes in order to make it truly your own. Along the way, we'll discuss what makes life worth living, the highs and the lows, and try to figure out what it is to navigate the complexity of being human. Within the kitchen, you are limitless, and with that comes the ability to find a voice in order to face the outside world. So join me, your host, Ren Newman, as we dive right on into this week's recipe. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode four. We're going to go deeper into some questions surrounding anxiety and get ourselves acquainted with it. I'm going to talk you through some of the questions that you can ask your doctor, how to talk to your friends and family, as well as some coping mechanisms for the day-to-day. Anxiety is different for everyone, as the brain is unique from person to person. So take some of these tips with a grain of salt. The things listed further on are a tentative guide and are things that have helped me or others around me. There are many methods to heal, cope, and to grow with anxiety in order to manage it well, and there is no way I can cover all of this in this episode. With that said, let's get into it. This episode, we have a guest speaker as well, Emily. She's a head roaster at a coffee company called Buongiorno, has a podcast on the art and science of coffee called Out of the Brew, is a dog mom, music enthusiast, Lord of the Rings stan, and an overall emblem of what it means to be kind. She's one of my best friends, and she, like so many others, has anxiety and it affects her on a semi-regular basis. This can make it hard to cope with, as it can creep on out of nowhere, but I'll let her talk about that. Hey, Emily. Hey, Ren. Thanks for being here. It's so exciting to have another person on the pod. How are you? How's your brain been? I'm doing good right now. Um, It's been a crazy week at work, so it's been a little exhausting. Um, But other than that, doing pretty good. I'm glad you're doing well. I'm sorry that work has been so exhausting. That can literally be the worst when you go in and it's just like, ugh, mountains of things to do. But... I suppose that is the purpose of work. You are so good at what you do, though, too. Um, For those of you just tuning in, or if you weren't paying attention in the beginning, Emily is a roaster at a coffee shop, and she does a phenomenal job. Like, I've never tasted anything bad from her. So, it's pretty impressive. She has a lot of experience and has put a lot of work toward it. So, she works hard, but she also is very passionate about what she does. Outside of work, what have you been loving right now? Music, TV shows... Or anything really. Um, sometimes it's nice to have a distraction and getting recommendations from other people is really helpful. Um, well, one of my things since I've been home a lot more is to read more. So I've been reading um, some Tolkien books. Um, I've been reading a, a series of books called Red Rising by Pierce Brown. It's like a mix of 1984 and The Hunger Games, but in space. So that's been really uh, great to read. Um, we've been watching a lot of Netflix shows, a lot of documentaries. Um, right now we're rewatching an anime called Bleach. Um, it's one of our favorites. So this is my third time watching it. And of course the office, I always watch that. Ugh, I still haven't seen Bleach. It's on my list. And I know this is going to get me a lot of hate, but I haven't seen the office either. I've seen like two episodes. Okay. Don't. (laughs) don't cancel me or anything it's just not my thing I'm more into like community or the IT crowd 
I appreciate The Office. I think the jokes are great. I've seen a lot of them on Instagram and fantastic show. I just can't bring myself to watch it. There's just so much to get through. And it's like you either know all the lines and can quote all of them or you know nothing. And I'm okay with not knowing anything. So that's really cool that you've been watching that. I'm sure it's been really, really helpful during this time to turn back to something that's really familiar. So on a different topic, you've dealt with anxiety for a while now. How long have you had anxiety and what's your journey been like? Have you tried medication, therapy? What does it look like for you? I guess I started dealing with anxiety maybe my first year of college. Um, And then it just started building after my second year of college. Just a lot of stress from commuting and um, like to Denton and being married and... um, just different responsibilities and work and um at times those just started kind of piling up and at the time I wasn't really great at communicating all of those feelings um so that that started building up more inside of me so I didn't really deal with it well when I started dealing with anxiety um I mean I'm not on medication or anything um I'm not seeing uh a, a counselor right now But um, recently, I've just learned the importance of at least talking with people, um, you know, talking with, you know, it's it's nice to talk with your spouse about it, but it's also good to have outside resources like a really close friend and um, finding someone who also deals with anxiety and some of the same issues. So that's been refreshing to find those people to talk about my anxiety with. I'm sure going through a lot of those changes at once too, like going to college and getting married and commuting and then starting a new job, like that's a lot of change all at once. And it would make sense that you would develop anxiety from it. It's gotta be really hard to navigate on the regular, especially with how much change and uncertainty there's been lately, you know, let alone with your job and each day being different from the one prior, you know, an amount of roasts, deliveries, challenges. You must be really adaptable. How have you been able to pivot in those times? Does anything help? Does anything make it worse? I know for me, I tend to go into autopilot. So I'll become hyper-focused on a few things. Not necessarily one, but maybe like three to five. And those are the things that become my fixation. Um, And I will either feel everything at once up front and then become a robot for a couple of weeks or I'll be a robot and then I'll feel everything and there is no in between I'm either all in or all out um which isn't good I know that too but it's hard to have emotion and be able to pivot I think a lot of my adaptability have has come from having an objective mindset um if you're familiar with the Enneagram I'm a type one and so I I don't always think in black and white as per the the chart or whatever um but I do think objectively and I am very good at it and it does help me to pivot very easily and to go from one thing to the next and adapt because I know that it's not forever um sometimes it doesn't translate to emotion I mean most of the time it doesn't translate to emotion because Our emotions can't know that things aren't going to last, right? You just feel them. Um, But it does help 
in order for me to cope and to not internalize everything because there's some part of my brain that's like, hey, it's okay, you're human. And not everyone has that. And I'm very lucky that I've developed that trait, albeit from a history of like trauma and <laughs> negative experiences that I don't wish on anyone. Um, being able to do that has been one of my key components of my identity. And I don't think I'd be able to cope as well with the world today if I didn't have it. So is there anything like that that's helped you to pivot or to help at all, Emily? Or do you find that anything makes it worse to go back to our earlier questions? I think so. Um, I think about after a month into um, social distancing and quarantine um, was when my anxiety started hitting really hard because at the beginning of all of this, uh, I was doing pretty good. Like I was actually kind of excited being at home more and I like being at home. But then anxiety just started to build up. I think just my mind trying to adjust to the fact that, you know, I can't go see people like normal. And I'm kind of, I'm an extroverted introvert, so I enjoy my time at home. But I also do find energy being with other other people. And I think when that started hitting me, I think my mind was just trying to adjust. And so it made it really difficult to sleep for about two weeks. And I just felt very fatigued um, on a daily basis. And it kind of got to a point where I really thought I was just going crazy just from not sleeping well. Um, I mean, definitely talking it out helps. You know, I have my husband Jordan to talk about stuff with and um, uh, I know I've talked with you about some of it and you've given some really good tips and, um, my other best friend, Hannah, she's been going through some of the same stuff. So, um, definitely talking it out has helped. Um, I'm not, I'm trying to think of anything that's made it worse. Um, it, cause normally anxiety hits me really bad at night, especially before bed and, um, I would try to take melatonin or CBD oil to kind of help me relax. And I think there might have been one night where I kind of went a little overboard with stuff like that. And um, it made the anxiety five times worse. Um, so I think, you know, for me, it's helped relying more on communication and talking out my feelings because normally that's really hard for me to do um, rather than rely on um, a lot of things like melatonin to help me calm down. You know, I want to try to find ways to, not to say that that's a bad thing, but just try to find more natural ways to kind of ease my, ease my mind and ease the anxiety. I think that's very interesting. I think a lot of people have turned to CBD in times like this, especially to try to ease their mind. Um, for some people it works, some people it doesn't. Um, Melatonin works for a lot of people for sleep problems. It never worked for me, um, but it did work for my sister. And that has helped her a lot just to like calm down at the end of the night and to not um, battle with insomnia as badly as she does. Um, she also has medicine on top of that to help with the insomnia. But I know that initially melatonin helped a lot. Um, so it just kind of depends from person to person. Um, do you think being around people helps or do you think it makes it worse? 
Has there ever been a situation where you were around someone you just didn't understand your anxiety? And how'd you react? Uh, I think it depends who I'm around. Um, like lately, we've been seeing more people like slowly and, you know, practicing social distancing. So we're seeing more people safely. Um, um, I don't think I've been around people who didn't understand my anxiety. Um, so that, I don't think that's really been an issue. Um, you know, we've been seeing my mom and, uh, she's, she's understanding and, um, she being with her and my siblings helps to kind of ease it, my mind a bit. And, um, honestly just going to work and, um, I have a coworker in the space with me and we work, um, just across the warehouse. So we're still at a safe distance, but we still get to talk and stuff. So that's pretty helpful. Um, but no, I don't think I've been around anyone who doesn't understand because I feel like the mental health and anxiety is something that I don't want to say it's more common. Uh, I feel like especially in our generation, it is it has become more common. I feel like just because there's a lot of stress from a lot of different factors around people our age, but um, and in our um, community. But um, I think people are becoming more understanding and more aware of mental health. So I think that that's something that's really helpful to know. That's very true. I think that there is more awareness um, surrounding mental illness in this day and age. And I think social media has helped a lot with that. I do think that the stigmas have gotten worse in some ways. And I'll discuss that a little bit later. Um, but yeah, it does help to have more people aware and to know at least the basic terms. It does help to communicate. Um, I'm glad that people around you seem to be understanding and caring and, and kind because that's, that's really all you can ask for. But I know that being around family and friends who don't have experience with mental illness or any state other than neurotypicality is very difficult. It's almost impossible to express one's inability to do certain things because your brain isn't allowing you to. It takes captive your body, your senses, until you don't know where you stop and the anxiety begins. It's not just worrying as worrying ends. It's like micro panics that pulsate with a rhythmic heartbeat all of their own. Anxiety can come out of nowhere, make its home in you, and leave without saying goodbye. There is no closure. It's an ongoing trauma that occurs again and again and again and again and again which makes it very difficult to communicate to others as well as to stay in touch with yourself. I guess, Emily, how have you been able to communicate those thoughts with those around you? And finally, what do you do in order to help yourself to care for all aspects of you? Whenever I'm having those thoughts, because anxiety also affects me very physically, like I experience heartburn, um, sometimes I get a headache. Um, I just start to feel very tense and I just feel a lot of knots in my stomach. And um, I try to communicate all the other ways that I'm, anxiety makes me feel. Um, so sometimes anxiety just makes me, it makes me feel like I'm just in a warehouse and I'm spinning around constantly. Um, just like how my head is spinning, uh, just round and round and round. And um, 
So I try to communicate also just the physical aspect, and I think that helps just because I'm, I feel like I'm a very physical person in terms of feelings and, you know, it also being my love language, I feel like I also help relate to other people physically. Um, so it, it helps, it gives me a bit of a better understanding of how it makes them feel that way as well as mentally. Um, so I try to communicate how that makes me feel in that aspect. Sometimes it helps me to communicate why I'm feeling anxious, even though it may not be as big of a deal as it should be. Sometimes I get anxious about really small things, but it helps me to communicate maybe why I'm feeling that way um, to maybe help get to the root problem, not just deal with like the surface issues, but you know, there could be something underlying about something maybe I haven't talked about or something I haven't faced head on that's giving me that anxiety. So I try to start talking about the things verbally that's bugging me or giving me that anxiety. And then, you know, it does over time help me get to the root of a problem. Um, I try to help myself. I mean, definitely communicating helps, but then um, I think being away from my phone helps. Um, I think seeing, you know, all the different news and all the different conflicting perspectives, even of how people should go about this pandemic. And if you, you know, like you should be wearing masks or you shouldn't be wearing masks. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that, um, are on different sides of this whole thing. So sometimes that, I feel like that also gives me anxiety, just like seeing all those conflicting views and some people being pretty aggressive with it. So it's nice to not read into that all the time. And um, so I've been putting my phone down a lot more, like walking our dogs and especially going to bed, you know, all instead of being on my phone, I've been reading more often and that kind of eases my brain a bit. So that definitely has helped. So I think definitely screen time uh, definitely has an effect on anxiety and again everyone's different but at least for me I realized that being on my phone constantly um was a huge uh issue for me and so putting that down has um helped ease my anxiety more and more and also uh taking baths help especially with eucalyptus or any kind of um herb has been really relaxing for me and um, just trying to figure out ways to do that self-care, you know, also like reading and cooking more. I've been cooking a lot more. So just finding those activities to keep my brain going, but also knowing that these activities also ease my mind. I'm glad you brought up screen time. I do something similar. So I actually have timers on all my devices, especially on like social media apps well, I say apps. I only use Instagram. Um, <laughs> so I have a timer on there that goes off after 30 minutes of use per day. And I can't get on after that. I'm locked out. So I found that I started doing that about a year ago and that's helped a lot. And then with other forms of media, like I'll check my email maybe once a day, but I'm very limited, um, in what I interact with. I've not had a Twitter, Facebook, I rarely get on. I mean, social media has done a lot of good for the world, but it's also draining. Um, the demand to be constantly there and to see what's going on 
if you miss out on something, it's it's mentally taxing, and it gets old very quickly. Um, and people, you can never read them online, and it just adds a whole other dimension to trying to figure out what people are trying to say. It's a mess. It's it's a lot. I do agree with the taking baths part. That's just being submerged in something warm, uh, where your body doesn't have to hold any weight, and it's just it's nice to float. So. Those are really wise words and brilliant techniques, Emily. Uh, Humans are so diverse, and it's truly about finding what works for you. And that occurs by taking into account a variety of methods and mashing them together like clay to form a Frankenstein of care to battle anxiety for you so you don't have to do it all the time. Thank you again for being here, for being a friend, a kind human, and an overall beam of joy please, 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 please let everyone know where they can find you. Um, That way they can go check out your podcast and your blog and just discover more about coffee and the kind of person that you are. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be on here. I love your podcast. And of course, you're one of the best bakers in the entire world. Um, If ever I have a baking question, I know I can trust you. Um, I'm on Instagram uh, at Emily underscore Adkisson. Um, I also have my blog account out of the brew and it's just out uh, dot of dot the dot brew. Ah, Emily, thank you so much again for being here. You're such a gem. Uh, she's so good. But as we discussed earlier with Emily, talking about your anxiety is hard for a multitude of reasons. The stigma behind mental illness is more present than ever and has manifested in a variety of ways. Before the time of the social internet, the stigma was more around getting help, and if you sought help, you were viewed as something other or weak and unable to handle your own emotions. Now it seems to be that the previous stigma is paired with having a mental illness for attention or to be relatable or cool. This is grossly oversimplified and is just an examination of this problem. And I acknowledge that because this is a hard topic to cover in depth. There will always be perspectives that go undiscussed. However, it's been something I've noticed within the last five years or so, especially with the rise of Tumblr in the mid-2010s, is people romanticizing or desiring to have a mental illness. They'll claim to have one for the sake of art, relatability, or for other personal reasons. I've never understood this outside of the art realm. A lot of artists have suffered and died from their mental struggles. Just look at painters like Rothko, poets like Plath. There's a group of people who think having a mental illness will enhance their art or the public's perception of it. The tortured artist who is enslaved to her own craft and bound only by her mind. It's not true at all. You don't need anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, OCD, or a cocktail of other mental illnesses to be a great artist or to be relatable. Akin to every other human, their experiences were shaped by the things that they did, endured, sought out, and experimented with. Their perspectives shaped their craft, and it wouldn't be an artist's perspective without all of them, including their mental illness. This doesn't enhance their work, it makes it their own. It takes, it takes art and portrays it in that person's specific tone of living, and that's what resonates more than anything, the way they express themselves honestly, even if they were being aloof. It is the human experience portraying it in a way that is unique to the individual and to the time and society they lived in that makes art so special and treasured. It's not mental illness. 
To romanticize that part of one's life is like to discount the other. Like saying they wouldn't be where they ended up without it, both in success and in failure. It is such a hard thing to navigate and can make getting help or talking about it that much harder. Those questions still swirl in people's minds today. Are they making it up? Did they buy into the idea of anxiety to be like someone else? Are they doing it or creating it by themselves? By wanting to be viewed like, insert celebrity here, did they manifest it? If they're getting help, then they can't manage it on their own, but I can, so does that just mean they're weak? These stigmas, as well as lack of access, affordability, and a variety of other factors make it hard for many people to find help. It can be especially daunting if it's your first time, or if you've had bad experiences in the past. It can make one leery of talking to any professionals. The main thing that I find helpful with counseling or therapy is that once you find one that you enjoy, they're there to be objective and to not judge. To listen. To provide advice that is outside of any of your day-to-day situations. To give clarity into insight into who you are and why you might be doing the things that you've been doing and how to combat it. It's also okay to try on different therapists, go to a few first sessions and consults with a host of professionals. It's kind of like dating. The first one you try may be the best fit, but you won't know unless you try a few to see who is the best one for you. Especially as it is your mental health that you are trying to aid, you want to make sure that you get along and that they have experience in similar situations that may have occurred in your life. Especially if you're comfortable with one or no gender, on the phone or in-person consultations, or if you need a therapist who specializes in LGBTQ plus issues, going to a few initial visits with different therapists is okay and doesn't disrespect or cause distress to the other therapists. They also know that they might not be the best fit, but it's hard to gauge that for you. Your therapist will look at a variety of factors to see if you meet the criteria for social anxiety disorder, and they'll help to develop a treatment plan that works for you and fits into your life. So what are those factors? Let's look at a few and see what the treatment options are. This is just to give you a little insight into what happens when you go to a therapy session. So the physical symptoms of social anxiety disorder, or SAD, I hate calling it SAD, but there it is, can be extremely distressing. Common symptoms include blushing, sweating, shaking, muscle tension, chills, chest tightness, chest pain, trembling voices, shortness of breath, a lump in the throat, blurred vision, ringing in the ears, headaches, dry mouth, dizziness, nausea, diarrhea, tingling, heart racing, heart pounding, feelings of derealization or feelings of detachment from oneself. For some people, these physical symptoms may become so severe that they can escalate into a full-blown panic attack. However, unlike those with panic disorder, people with SAD know that their panic is provoked by fears of social and performance-related situations rather than fears about the panic attacks themselves. Social anxiety disorder also involves cognitive symptoms, which are dysfunctional thought patterns, um, and individuals with this condition are bothered by negative thoughts and self-doubt when it comes to social and performance-related situations. Here are some common ones that are seen. There's only three. Uh, Negative bias, which is a tendency to discount positive social encounters and magnify the social abilities of others. Uh, Automatic negative evaluations about yourself in social or performance-related situations. For example, 
Imagine you start a new job or arrive on the first day of a new class. The instructor or manager asks everyone to introduce themselves to the group. Someone with social anxiety disorder may, may start to have thoughts such as, everyone looks so much more relaxed. What if I say something dumb? Or what if everyone notices my voice shaking? These thoughts start to rapidly spiral out of control to the point that you don't hear anything that anyone else has said. When it comes to your turn, you say as little as possible and hope that no one has noticed your anxiety. And lastly, negative beliefs. Strongly held beliefs about your inadequacy in social or performance-related situations. If these negative thought patterns continue without treatment, they may also erode one's self-esteem over time, which is why it's so important to get help or just to talk about it. People with social anxiety disorder can also act in certain ways. They tend to make choices based on fear and avoidance rather than actual preferences, desires, or ambitions. For example, you may have dropped a class to avoid doing a presentation or turned down a job promotion because it meant increased social and performance demands. In severe cases, if left untreated, people with generalized social anxiety disorder are particularly at risk of having a poor quality of life. They may have few or no friends, no romantic relationships, drop out of school, quit jobs, and may use substances to tolerate anxiety. Those are like super extreme examples, so don't, don't take those to heart. Um, just because you have anxiety does not mean that you will end up having a poor quality of life. It's just that sometimes the behaviors can tend to err on that side. So um, just want to make a note there. It's not the way your life is going. So here are some common behavioral symptoms. Avoidance. The things done or not done to reduce anxiety about being in social or performance-related situations. Safety behaviors. Actions taken to control or limit experiences of social or performance-related situations. And escape. Leaving or escaping from a feared social or performance situations. Also, social anxiety disorder in children kind of appears differently than adults. Go figure. Young children with the disorder may cling to a parent have a tantrum when forced into social situations, refuse to play with other kids, prior complain of, you know, upset stomachs or other physical problems that aren't actually there. Um, and these kind of are a precursor for later social anxiety. In contrast, teens with SAD may avoid group gatherings altogether or show little interest in having friends. A diagnosis of social anxiety disorder cannot be made with any lab test or physical exam. As with all mental disorders, a diagnosis is based on whether a person meets certain standardized criteria set by the American Psychiatric Association. To this end, mental health professionals will refer to a handbook called Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, published by the AAPA, also known as the DSM. Um, they're currently on the fifth edition in DSM-5. Um, the process of diagnosis entails a review of the patient's mental health history and an interview to evaluate the person's perceptions and experiences. With regards to anxiety, one aim of the evaluation would be to determine if the fear is so severe as to interfere with your daily functioning, schoolwork, employment, or relationships. Here are some of the diagnostic criteria. You've marked fear or anxiety about one or more social situations in which you might be scrutinized by others, such as meeting new people, being observed, 
or giving a speech. You fear that you will humiliate yourself or embarrass yourself and be rejected by others based on how you act or because you display symptoms of anxiety. You always experience fear or anxiety in these situations. The fear or anxiety you experience is out of proportion to the actual threat of the situation. The fear or anxiety has lasted for six months or longer. The fear or anxiety causes significant distress or impairment in important areas of your life, such as work or connections with others. This fear or anxiety cannot be attributed to the effects of a drug or medication. It's not explained by any other mental disorder, and it's not related to a medical condition. If you only experience these fears when speaking or performing in public, then the specifier performance only will be added to your diagnosis. So there is a little bit of a difference between performance anxiety and um, generalized anxiety. So that's just what they're saying there. There are other tools too, and um, in addition to the DSM-5 to render a diagnosis. Um, mental health professionals sometimes use a rating scale to help assess the level of social anxiety or specific types of symptoms. This is really helpful um, in the case of treatment, as your symptoms can be assessed before and after to determine whether things have improved. So, if you live with social anxiety, you may wonder whether your symptoms are severe enough for you to be diagnosed with social anxiety disorder. It's hard to know whether what you are experiencing is an illness or if it's just a feeling. As a rule of thumb, if the symptoms you are experiencing are significantly affecting aspects of your daily life, such as relationships, work, or school in a negative way, or you find yourself avoiding situations because of anxiety, a trip to the doctor might be in order. A psychiatrist um, is one who can help with treatment. They're the ones who can write prescriptions for pills if you need them later on. Um, Conversely, a counselor cannot write a prescription. They're there merely for therapy purposes, um, but they can refer you to a psychiatrist or doctor who can write a prescription if that's what you want. Um, the physical, cognitive, and behavioral symptoms of SAD can respond well to psychotherapy as well as CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy, and medication. If you've not already been diagnosed with SAD, obtaining a diagnosis and finding an anxiety therapist should be what you do first. They're going to be the ones who are really your support and your gateway into the other areas that will help you heal and to grow. Once you go and develop a rapport and a diagnosis, there are a few things to ask your therapist. What are my treatment options for anxiety? Are there underlying medical problems that could be causing my anxiety symptoms? Sometimes it's not just anxiety. Sometimes there's other things. Um, like, my mom has a lung condition, and that causes her to be anxious about situations that she can't control. Um, like, what the air quality is going to be like, and if she's going to be able to get around. Um, her condition causes her lymph nodes to swell and not drain well. So, her legs are swollen pretty regularly, and the worst it's been has been 16 inches around, just in her ankles, and so she can't walk very very far or very fast and do a lot of things and so she has anxiety over those type of situations where her autoimmune response might be triggered because she can't do anything about the air quality. Um, more questions include, <laughs> will I need to take an anxiety drug? Will I need to take it every day? How long will I need to take it? What are the side effects? How long before I can expect to feel better? 
Once treated, how likely is it that my anxiety symptoms will return? What lifestyle changes can I make to help me feel better? And how will alcohol or drugs interact with my medication? All of these things are super important to ask up front. That way you know what you're heading towards in terms of treatment. Um, a lot of people don't realize that they have to be their own advocate or that thought is very daunting, uh, especially because you're the one who's going to a medical professional and they should know what's best. But because people are so subjective and so diverse, it is hard to know what is best for every person. I mean, I don't even know what's best for me and I'm I'm me, <laughs> let alone what a counselor might think is best. So it's it's good to go into a session armed with questions just so you can move forward knowing a rough outline of what will happen, what's going on, and, and being open to those changes as well. Um, in addition to SAD, there's also different diagnosis that can be given. Um, it just depends upon how severe your symptoms are or if it's in tandem with another illness as well. Um, there's select mutism, which involves a failure to speak in specific social situations, like at school. It's usually diagnosed in ch childhood. Um, children with this disorder will fail to speak at school, but may talk with their family at home. Um, there's childhood onset fluency disorder, which is stuttering. So it's actually listed as a neurodevelopmental disorder, but it can cause anxiety in speaking in public. Um, especially when one is younger and kids don't understand that stuttering is completely normal and they make fun of the, their child who has this disorder, which is awful. Um, there's also avoidant personality disorder. Um, this disorder involves the same symptoms as social anxiety disorder, but to a stronger degree and with a broader pattern of avoidance. So I think of it as like fight or flight. These people always flee. Like, they just avoid people. Um, there's also panic disorder, which involves unexpected panic attacks that appear to come out of the blue. Unlike those with just your generic SAD, people with panic disorder may suspect a medical cause for their anxiety. Like my mom with her lung disease. She doesn't have panic attacks, but if one were to occur, it would likely be from the anxiety that came from that pre-existing condition. Agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is diagnosed alongside panic disorder and refers to a fear of having a panic attack in a place from which it would be hard to escape. People with social anxiety disorder may also be diagnosed with panic disorder and agoraphobia, but these are separate conditions. Autism Spectrum Disorder. ASD involves impairment in social communication across a range of contexts. Children who have high-functioning autism, level 1, may also have social anxiety. Now these are just different diagnoses that can go in tandem with anxiety, but they're not a given. Um, this is just to give you context for a little bit more of an in-depth conversation of what comes out of going to a therapist and to see, you know, what else goes on within the brain of some people who might have SAD. It's a very complicated topic just because humans are complex. And our brains are unsolvable. <laughs> They're like uh, one of the hardest puzzles that we have yet to figure out, which is exciting because we have more to learn, but it's also scary because we just don't know. It's
It's kind of like the vastness of the ocean in that we don't really know what's at the bottom. We just know that there is a bottom and that there's stuff in there that we haven't identified yet. It's like that, but in our own heads, which is crazy to think about. We all contain multitudes, and this is just a small piece of the multitudes that we can contain. So, with that, I hope you have a good weekend. Um, if you're listening to this when it comes out, it's Memorial Day weekend, so if you have, you know, a four-day weekend, take advantage of it. Although, what is a four-day weekend? <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic, it's like day 71 of our weekend. <laughs> so, if you are vacationing, enjoy it. Do it safely, responsibly. Don't be one of those people who polarizes things. We don't need to have a fight over whether to wear a mask or not. Just do what your city, state, and county say to do, and you'll be fine. So thank you all for listening. Stay safe out there. Wash your hands. (laughs) And continue to advocate for yourself. Because no one else will do it better.